We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall never surrender until in God's good time, the new world with all its power and might steps forth to the rescue and the liberation of people. In times of universal deceit, truth is the only rebellion left. On today's show, the second installment of a two-part series where I'm interviewing Michael Knowles, who joins us here on The Rebellion to discuss his new book, Speechless. We'll talk about Michael's faith. Obviously, we will talk about politics, cancel culture, and more. I'm Dr. Everett Piper, and this is The Rebellion. Welcome to today's Rebellion. As I said in the introduction, this is the second installment of our two-part series with Michael Knowles as our guest. Michael Knowles, the author of Speechless, as well as the host of his own show, The Michael Knowles Show on The Daily Wire. You need to follow him if you don't. Michael is a very thoughtful, very intelligent, very well-read, very funny political and social commentator. And his book, Speechless, is spot on. It's something that we all need to attend to. Also, the other books that he's mentioned in this interview, for example, The Unbroken Thread with Sarab Armari. This is an excellent book. I just read it. I'm going to start going through it and featuring much of it in some subsequent commentary. So we're very privileged, to be quite frank, to have Michael on the show with us today and to get you some deeper exposure to his his thoughts on a biblical worldview and how Christianity has affected his life and how Christianity, that worldview, has salted our culture for the good. It's opened the door to freedom and liberty. And it's actually a door that we can shut and lock and keep tyranny out. Talk about G.K. Chesterton, C.S. Lewis, and more. But I want to take an early break and acknowledge our sponsors so that we don't have to interrupt the flow of Michael's thinking and his responses and so that we can just enjoy this conversation. And really, I'm trying to make it less of a conversation and more of just ask a couple simple questions ever and let the guy talk. So hopefully I have accomplished that. Again, let's take a break, acknowledge our sponsors, and when we get back, we'll talk with Michael Knowles more about Speechless and his view of a biblical worldview and how it has impacted him and our culture. I'm Dr. Everett Piper, and this is The Rebellion. Okay, welcome back to The Rebellion. As you know, our guest today is Michael Knowles, author of Speechless, Controlling Words, Controlling Minds. I'm delighted to have Michael on. I follow his podcast routinely. I know that uh, many of you that listen to The Rebellion do likewise. Yesterday, we talked about political correctness, and I want to get into the, the weeds a little bit more on that today, but I'd really like Michael to talk about his faith, about a biblical worldview, and about why it's important, the definition of a biblical worldview in his mind, and the importance of Christian faith, not only in his personal life, but 
uh, within the context of the book, if you want to have freedom, does Christianity have anything to do with that freedom? Michael, run with that. Well, Christianity has something very important to say about this. Christ himself has something very important to say about this, which is that the man who sins is a slave to sin. This runs quite counter to the modern liberal understanding of freedom, which is, which actually equates sin with freedom. <laughs> they will say that your ability to indulge any vice that you have uh, is, is the very essence of freedom. And Christ says, no, it's the antithesis, it's slavery. And St. Paul helps us to understand this when he says, the things that I want to do, I don't do, and the things that I don't want to do, I do. Well, what is he, is he babbling incoherently? Is he, no, he's, he's making a perfectly clear point that our will is divided. We have the lower will, which is known as the appetite. We have the rational will, which we cultivate by practicing virtue. And then there is the divine will, and the rational will mediates between the divine will and the appetite. So the process of liberal education throughout history has been a process of education, not just in terms of book learning, but also in how one is formed, how one behaves, how one develops the whole human person. That's a process of tamping down those base appetites and of cultivating the the higher virtues in accord with the rational will. Now, you know, if, if one were to look around a university campus, you would see, I think, quite the opposite of that. Uh, but, but that is the essence of freedom because there will be order. The order will be imposed. It will either be imposed by you, the individual, and the family, and the community, or it will be imposed by Dr. Fauci, or it will be imposed by, by some unaccountable bureaucrat, but it, but it will be imposed one way or the other. And, and political will uh, actually involves the wielding of power. You know, I, I know that for a lot of conservatives who have been deeply influenced by libertarians and neoconservatives over the past few decades, we often believe that it is somehow unjust to wield political power. You know, that, that the idea that uh, you should elect conservatives because the conservatives will do nothing and let you do whatever you want and that'll, that'll be really great. And that's just not the way government works. <laughs> There's nothing unjust about wielding political power on the happy occasions that the people give it to you. Actually, that's just the very definition of constitutional government. But you're, you're not going to have a guiding light on exactly what is good and what, what constitutes our traditional understanding of freedom if you don't ground that in, in the religion that has shaped our entire civilization, which is Christianity. You're a Catholic. Um, a quick story here. A couple years ago, I was invited to speak at one of the pontifical universities at the Vatican. I was their token evangelical, if you will. I had a wonderful time. They treated me um, like a king. They treated both my wife and I with the highest regard. We were sitting at dinner one night, and my newfound Catholic friends looked at me and said, uh, Everett, we just want to ask you a question. What do you think of Catholics? <laughs> <laughs> as you're the, kind of putting as the me token, on the spot, Cardinal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And my answer was this, and I'm setting you up here. My answer was, well, I want to thank you, especially mm. after being here with you for two or three days. I've learned that you have guarded the history of the church tenaciously, and I want to thank you for doing so. 
we evangelicals come up with a new idea that's five minutes old, and we <laughs> readily discard 2,000 years of church history for that new idea, and we should be ashamed of ourselves. Thank you for guarding the history of the church. You know, the pleasure is all mine. I really haven't done very much of this myself, but, but I, I think you're absolutely right that the, the, the church, uh, there's a line by Hilaire Belloc that sums it up, especially these days when one has some problems with things the bishops are doing and even the Holy Father is doing. Uh, I'm reminded of a line where Hilaire Belloc says, I am bound by my faith to hold the, the Catholic Church as a divine institution. However, for non-believers, one proof of its divine institution is that no other organization conducted with such knavish imbecility would have lasted a fortnight. And so I think that, <laughs> that describes the situation, especially for a lot of more traditional and conservative Catholics. And, and yet, even the most radical reformers of the Catholic Church run into impediments to their schemes because of the weight of tradition. So it doesn't matter. There are plenty of leftists and heretics that are hopping around the church these days, but be because of that history, because of that inertia, they have trouble <laughs> totally hollowing out the institution. Now, the, the other helpfulness here about uh, history and the weight of history is that there's really nothing new under the sun. And so w often when I'm talking to a liberal friend of mine, They'll bring up this issue of transgenderism, which is all, all the rage these days. And they'll say, Michael, you just, you don't understand. We didn't know before that men can be women and women can really secretly be men. And there's actually 700 million genders and, you know, whatever, whatever they're going to say. And we just had no idea, but now scientists have proven that actually you, you can be the 75th gender. And I have to correct them because transgenderism is just a repackaging of the same old Gnostic dualist heresy that has been cropping up in, in the church for the past 2,000 years. We know it by the names of Manichaeism, by the names of Marcionism, Albigensianism, uh, and, and many other names as well. And what it asserts is that the human body has nothing to do with the human person. You know, I'm, I'm talking to you right now. I have an Adam's apple. I've got a relatively deep voice. We, I have appendages that we need not discuss on a family show. And yet, and yet, <laughs> if I say that I'm a woman, then I really am a woman. I'm 100% a woman. All in the it's name of science. That's right. All in the name of science. And so you get this very strange heresy. And if one is familiar with the history of the church, you would be able to identify that. But unfortunately, the, the left, I think, wants to blot out a lot of history. And, and what's curious about the transgender moment is on the one hand, they tell us that the body has nothing to do with who we really are. And then on the other hand, they tell us that we're all just meat puppets, right? They say, you don't have a soul, no spirit. You are just a body, all your loves and hopes and dreams. They're just illusions. Uh, caused by weird synapses firing in your head. So which is it? Are we all flesh or are we not flesh at all? Well, I think what, what the left is really after is the traditional understanding of, of the human person, which is that we're hylomorphic, body, soul, and spirit all together, and they're related, and they're, they're inseparable on this earth. Unfortunately, we, we, because I think we've lost a sense of history, and we've, we've lost a sense of even objective reality such that we can seriously discuss philosophy, because we've lost all of that, uh, you, you can't point that out. If, if you in any way object to the transgender craze, you're written off as a bigot and a hater and an ignorant rube, and, and civilization crumbles all the way. You know, uh, it's interesting that you 
mention this. I just did a show on Gnosticism two days ago. And the question was, does the body matter? Do we care whether or not we have a body? And my question was, is transgenderism leading to transhumanism? Yeah. And you know where I'm going with this. Yeah. There's an argument out there right now, as you well know, that we are nothing but information. And that if we can just collect enough information out of our heads and put it in some sort of artificial intelligence, that we will, lo- we will live forever. I think this is insane. Intuitively, it's insane. But yet there are very... Uh, bright. There are very wealthy people who believe that that's the next step for human beings. I think that's true. And I think I I know very, very intelligent people who hold this crazy view. And I, I can't help but notice that throughout history, our theories of the mind tend to mirror the technological advances of the age. So uh, during the age of the printing press, theories of the mind tended to center around impression and uh, the idea that what you see, what you take in through your senses is a disproportionate aspect of who you really are. Then during the age of the steam engine, when that was the great technological advancement, you, you had the advent of Freud and the idea that we were all pressure cookers and all deeply repressed and we needed to let off a little steam before we exploded. And, and by let off a little steam, they mean indulge vice, as though somehow you're going to tam- tamp down vice by indulging vice. A total inversion of, of Aristotle, for instance, the idea that you practice virtue and virtue becomes easier. Uh, this was the opposite. This said, you, you know, let off a little steam. And now we live in the age of the computer. And the age of the computer says that we're all just information. We're all just data and you can upload it and you can download it. And so it's no surprise, I think, that the transhumanists and the people who want to deny mortality will say that one day we'll just upload our brains to the cloud and then we'll live for, forever. And, and it's very silly. Uh, that is not what the human person is. And uh, the people who are betting on that are in for a rude awakening. But there is a lot of evil that can happen in the meantime because ultimately all, all of that is a denial of human dignity. And, uh, and, and missing out on the, the purpose of life, which contrary to the skeptics is knowable. And actually to quote a Protestant catechism, uh, the, the Westminster Catechism, is to uh, know God and to enjoy him forever. Yeah. Now you mentioned to me off air that uh, you were an atheist for, I, I can't remember what period of time you said, but um, that- you've come back to faith. Um, when and how? And why? So it it was a process of about 10 years. I I was away from the church, beginning really with my confirmation. I was 13 years old. God bless my mother, who I told her I was an atheist at age 13. And she said, oh, Michael, just receive the sacrament of confirmation. We, We Catholics have this sacrament of confirmation. So it's a real firm thing. And if you miss it, it can become a real problem later on. She said, you're going through a phase just like every other stupid 13 year old. <laughs> just, just do it. And trust me, you'll thank me later. So in deference to my mother, I did that. But I was very taken with the arguments of the, the new atheists, that sort of publishing phenomenon of Christopher Hitchens and Richard Dawkins and Daniel Dennett and those guys, uh, as, as I think 13-year-olds <laughs> uniquely are. People who are a little older probably are not as taken with them. Uh, I was scandalized by the church sex scandals. That, that was part of it, too. I, I fear that the weak catechesis pushed by the bishops and, and by the church broadly uh, after the Second Vatican Council may have played a role in it some of those sappy hymns and uh, weak, weak teaching. And then uh, I think most of it 
really was on my own shoulders. I was a prideful little 13-year-old punk who couldn't acknowledge that there was a higher power than me (laughs) in the universe. And so, so I was away from the church for about a decade. I started to come back in maybe five-ish years later, uh, coincidentally, actually, when a, a friend of mine who was an evangelical Protestant, a freshman year roommate, introduced me to the modal ontological argument, a Calvinist reformulation of the uh, Catholic argument for the existence of God. And even further, he was a Calvinist at a Catholic university, uh, Notre Dame. And then I began reading some C.S. Lewis. I began reading Chesterton. I began, uh, I met a wonderful priest, Father George Rutler, later on. And only after that intellectual ascent, because, you know, I had, I had left the church in a kind of fit of intellectual hubris, and so that was kind of the way back in, did, I, uh, did it all click and, and did numinous experience even uh, really, really begin to happen. And uh, so by the age of 23, I was pretty firmly, firmly back in uh, with the zeal of a revert. And, and actually, this is sort of timely. Uh, the, the Latin mass played kind of a big role here. After the Second Vatican Council, the so-called reformers uh, of the age of Aquarius decided to remove the traditional beautiful liturgy and replace it with something that really was less reverent. And so I had never experienced it. I mean, it was really suppressed for most of my childhood. Uh, Pope Benedict loosened up and reauthorized the Latin Mass, and it was really so beautiful. I mean, it really showed you the relationship between beauty and truth and goodness. And uh, unfortunately, recently, Pope Francis has suppressed the Latin Mass again, which is is unfortunate because I know a a lot of young people who have been brought back into the church or who have converted, not not even necessarily uh, to Catholicism, but just come to assent to to Christ, to assent to the existence of God, not because of some soft soap and condescending blather, but because of truth. I mean, it reminds me of Lewis's line when he says, if you seek truth, you might find comfort in the end. But if you seek comfort, you'll find neither truth nor comfort, only soft soap and wishful thinking to begin and in the end despair. Mm. I think young people, they Mm -hmm. want orthodoxy. They want seriousness. They want... uh, they want the truth, and, and they're not getting it from a lot of people. You know, it's so true. I, I was asked over and over again when I was the president of Oklahoma Wesleyan University, how can you get away with this? How can you be as conservative as you are, standing for the primacy of Christ, the priority of Scripture, the pursuit of truth, and the practice of wisdom, the four pillars of the mission statement that we had carved out? How can you be that clear and conservative and still get students to come here? And my response was always the same. They're begging for this. They're not getting it anywhere else. They want something that's clear and bold and right and real. They're tired of the mush. They are. They absolutely are. It's it's so funny because getting back, we had had mentioned that there's an effort to, finally, there's at least an inclination to regulate pornography, even though the elites won't let us do it. And I've noticed in these debates, the people who don't want to ban pornography tend to be older. <laughs> they tend to be boomers. They tend to be people who say, oh no, that's old, that's crazy, that's old, old-fashioned. We need porn everywhere. That's freedom, man. And the people who are behind the big push to regulate and even ban pornography, they're not old fuddy-duddies. They're young people. They're, they're 18-year-olds who have grown up with smartphones in their hands and whose brains and souls have been destroyed by this scourge that the, the 
leaders of our country won't take on. They are in some ways much more conservative. They're much, much more traditional than older generations. And, and they're much more willing to say that some things are good and some things are bad. And, and we need to do the most basic thing that governments do, namely pursue good and avoid evil. This is the most basic thing that individuals are supposed to do. And they, want, they need some grounding for that because otherwise we're going to be adrift and we're going to decay as has happened increasingly so. It reminds me of Ernest Hemingway's observation of how one goes bankrupt, which, which is that the process happens gradually, then suddenly. <laughs> I think we're, we're kind of in the suddenly phase. And so, so young people in particular want something to hold on to, to, to uh, stave off those, those social gusts. They recognize the need for the good, the true, and the beautiful, and they're hungry for it. And I think it's it's proof of uh, St. Paul's writing to the church in Rome, and that is the truth of God is written on every human heart. Which gets back to the issue of worldview. Chuck Colson was famous for saying there are four components to a worldview. The origin of man, the nature of man, the redemption of man, and then the responsibility of man. I think your book, Speechless, is touching on these four things in various different ways, but based on the conversation we've had already, I think that you agree that you've got to get the answer to those questions right Otherwise, everything thereafter is going to be wrong. You do. And, and conservatives, by the way, for too long have accepted the false anthropology of the libertarians. And they've done it because it was a handy foil when we were fighting against the Soviet Union and international communism. But it, it isn't true. And the false anthropology is this, that I own my body, that I own my person, that I am free to do whatever it is that I want to do. And that's just not the case. You did not create yourself. You did not decide how you're coming into this world. I hope you will not be the one to decide how you go out of this world. Uh, we are born into this world, not only with rights, as, as people of this persuasion have insisted for so long, but with obligations, with duties to your family and your community and your state and your country and to your God. And uh, so we've got to get the anthropology right if we're going to get the rest of the, the worldview right, we need to recognize first things. <laughs> we need to recognize that there uh, that we can know things. We need we can't engage in this radical skepticism. I think we need to embrace, to use the technical term, a realist epistemology. And I I, I think uh, actually to use a related term that William F. Buckley Jr. was fond of, we need to be epistemological optimists, <laughs> which is a very Buckley-esque sort of line to use. Meaning we need to say that we can know things. Things and some things can be settled, and most the most basic things need to be settled. I'm I'm even reminded of of John Locke, you know, the father of liberalism, who in the letter concerning toleration says that we've got to tolerate everybody, except for atheism. We actually can't really tolerate atheism because <laughs> it would undo the entire civilization. And uh, John Milton says something similar in Areopagitica. It's the most famous defense of free speech in the English language. He actually goes further in Areopagitica and says he wants to censor Catholics as well. And, you know, frankly, I say as a mackerel snapper myself, I get it. <laughs> I, I at least get it why, uh, as to why he would say that at the time. But what he's saying is that certain, certain things have to be held in common and held to be true if we we're to have a civilization whatsoever. So this is very important for, I think, conservatives to come back around to, to some of those basic aspects of what it means to have a worldview, as you put it quite rightly. And uh, only then will we have even a chance at impeding the left's steady march toward progress. 
Michael, I'm so grateful that you've taken the time to join us here on The Rebellion, and I want to give you another opportunity to tell the listeners how they can go out and purchase your book, Speechless. Well, I'm sure, Dr. Piper, it's been such a, such a pleasure for me to be here, and I'm sure now that our conversation is on the air, booksellers are going to be scrambling to get this book off the shelves. It is simply heretical to the modern liberal sensibility, but assuming you can still find it, it's at Amazon, Barnes & Noble. Uh, you, I, you may still be able to get a signed first edition at Premier Collectibles, though I'm not totally positive about that. And you can get it at your local bookstore as well. And the book is Speechless, Controlling Words, Controlling Minds. Michael, thank you so much for joining us here on The Rebellion. It's been a real treat. And I want to let the listeners know that you've agreed to give us a little bit more for those Patreon members, those who subscribe to The Rebellion. So if you're listening right now and you're a subscriber to The Rebellion, Again, you can do so by going to patreon.com backslash Dr. Everett Piper. That's patreon.com backslash D-R-E-V-E-R-E-T-T-P-I-P-E-R. If you are a member, great, thank you. If you aren't a member yet, then go to patreon.com backslash Dr. Everett Piper and subscribe. Because then you'll get this special addition to the interview with Michael Knowles, where I ask him to give us his prediction of 2022 and 2024. What does he think is going on in the political arena right now? Will Donald Trump rise up again to run? Or is there somebody else, the heir apparent, and will Donald Trump play the role of the kingmaker? This is the question that I ask him. Michael, I say, tell us what you think of the upcoming elections. Fascinating response from Michael Knowles. So if you want to listen to that, that's for our Patreon members only. I think all of you would agree that this has been an exceptional two-part series with Michael Knowles and that his contribution to the cultural conversation is outstanding. This whole issue of controlling speech and controlling minds, this whole debate that we're having right now about freedom and liberty, the basis, the foundation, the cornerstones for a free society, a constitutional republic. Can you have a constitution if you have no primary first things that serve as the context of that constitution? What are you constituting? What are the things that you're holding together and defining and guarding and protecting when you have a constitution? It can't be a vacuum. That vacuum is always filled. Michael, in much more eloquent terms than mine, has pointed that out, that you must have fence posts if you're going to have a fence, and if you don't have a fence, you are not going to have any freedom. Radical libertarianism. This don't worry, be happy, live and let live. It doesn't matter what you do as long as it works for you. This radical libertarianism doesn't work. In fact, it's fake, it's false. You have to have cult if you're going to have culture. And when I refer to cult, I'm not referring to a false religion. You know that. You're, you're, you're very well aware of that based on what I've said in previous shows. But the root word of culture is cult. You've got to have definition, a clarity, a worldview. You've got to have a agreed-upon set of basics, of first things, if the culture is going to be defined and if you're going to be a free people. Is that our culture? Is liberty our culture? These are questions that Michael addresses in Speechless, and you need to go out and get his book. Again, 
very grateful for him serving as our guest today. And remember this, in times of universal deceit, truth, truth, the definition of words, the definition of ideas, the holding on to that clarity in those fence posts and cornerstones. Truth is the only rebellion left. I'm Dr. Everett Piper, and this is The Rebellion. <laughs>